Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, our weekly podcast on technology and science. And coming up... I speak to Dr. Angela Gallup about her career as one of Britain's most eminent forensic scientists. It's extremely difficult to get rid of all traces of blood. And so however good a job they think they've done, usually they'll leave something. And the rise of the robot barista. I think this is perhaps a slight sign that there are all kinds of jobs that no one was ever thinking that machines would be involved in. But first, over the past few years, scores of scientific studies have found declines in different measures of insect life and health. Earlier this year, two Australian entomologists reviewed all the evidence of insect decline they could find. It was the first meta-study and was one of the first to make a global estimate of insect collapse. From this, they claim that a third of all insect species are threatened with extinction. But why is this bad? And why is it happening? And with so many insects and so few studies, how much can we trust the data? To discuss this, I'm joined by John Parker, The Economist senior editor, who's written about this for this week's issue. Hello, John. Hi. John, why is this a bad thing? So basically, insects make pretty much all natural ecosystems work. And if there aren't any insects, those natural ecosystems won't work. Insects basically enable most plants to reproduce. If there aren't any insects, plants won't be able to reproduce. We won't have much food. The ecosystems insects influence help control the weather, you know, local rainfall patterns. They make the soil fertile. They are sort of an absolutely core part of natural systems. And if they're in trouble, all natural systems are in trouble. Okay, so... That sounds quite dramatic. Why are the insect populations declining? We don't honestly know. It seems like everything is going wrong in the insect world at once. So insects eat typically wildflowers. And in Britain, wildflower meadows since the 1930s have basically reduced by about 98%. Insects are also facing unfamiliar diseases, But these diseases are traveling around the world so that honeybees, for example, in every continent are being attacked by something called the varroa mite, which came out of Southeast Asia. In Southeast Asia, the local honeybee species have a degree of immunity. Elsewhere, they don't. So they're all being killed. And we're deliberately killing insects. We have large numbers of pesticides, insecticides, and so on. So insects are starving. They're being poisoned. They're losing their habitat. Like, a lot's going wrong. So what is the data that the meta-study brings to bear on this? And what is the shortcoming of that data? Right. This is very, very important. I should just explain to begin with that insects are the most abundant kind of life on Earth in terms of the number of species. We've named about a million insect species. That compares with 
a few thousand mammals and a few tens of thousands of birds. So insects are phenomenally abundant. Compared with a million species, we have 73 studies <laughs> of insect numbers. So the data is very poor in number. And of that 73, we've got hardly anything in most of the tropics. One in China, none in India, that kind of thing. So I think we should say right away that we only have reasonably good long-term data about how insects are doing in one place over time from Europe and a little bit in America. So I think what you can say about the data is we have enough to say there are specific species in trouble. What we can't say is that there's like a global catastrophe in the making. Not because we like know there's not, but that we simply don't have enough information to say that. All of these studies are pretty pessimistic. Yes, they all show large declines, but there's a rather important reason for that. It's because the professors went looking for studies which showed insect decline. They basically typed search terms into the database, insect decline. So not surprisingly, all the studies that they found <laughs> showed decline. There are studies which show some resilience by insects, and they weren't, of course, picked up by this search. It is true, I think, that most studies do show decline, but not all. So what do we need to do next? Well, firstly, we need more data. And there is more data than you might think around people have been sort of, you know, in a kind of amateurish way, looking at the number of insects on their farms, or there have been sort of insect studies carried out by local naturalists, that kind of thing. It's quite a lot of that. So we do need to look at all that data. In my opinion, there's a case also for saying just for minimizing risks and using sort of precautions, we should say we know there have been very big falls in insect numbers in Europe. We need to provide these insects with somewhat more wild areas, areas where they have a little bit of defense against pesticides and so on. And in order to do that, therefore, I think there is a case for saying these little areas of farms, these areas of wasteland, they're set aside for wildlife and we're not going to touch them and we hope that insects will kind of come back. One of the few good news parts of the insect uh, uh, history, as it were, is that insects live in a world of boom and bust, much more so than any other wild animal. You'll get like a thousand insects one year and a million the next year. That's quite possible. So insects can bounce back. John, that's fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you. As regular Babbage listeners know, we often give away a book to one listener who has answered one of our silly subjective questions with suitable pith. And this week, we're giving away the book The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and the Revolution that Swept Virtual Reality by Blake J. Harris and published by HarperCollins. We have two copies of this book. In order to win, please email us at radio at economist.com, but you must answer this question. We call them bugs, but what do insects call us? And don't say murderer. 
send us your most creative answers. We'll choose the best and send out copies of the book. Next, Angela Gallup is one of Britain's most eminent forensic scientists, known equally well for setting up full-scale forensic science laboratories as for leading the scientific teams responsible for solving many of Britain's most complex cold cases. And she's just published a memoir, When the Dogs Don't Bark, A Forensic Scientist's Search for the Truth. Hello, Angela, and welcome to Babbage. Hello, Ken. Angela, my first question is, are there any common mistakes that criminals regularly make? I think they try to varying extents to clear up behind themselves. Take, for example, a bloody crime scene. It's extremely difficult to get rid of all traces of blood. And so however good a job they think they've done, usually they'll leave something. It's true with other kinds of evidence as well, that usually there's something that we can find. And it was in 1910, I'm very fond of talking about Edmund Lockhart, who first sort of formulated what's now called the exchange principle, which is fundamental to forensic science, which is all about um, or can be summarized as every contact leaves a trace. And for a long time, I and my colleagues, we would say, oh, yes, you know, every contact leaves a trace, you know, yes. But sometimes you don't find them. In this case, you probably won't find it because of this or because of that. But I think the longer that I've done this job, the more I've realized that he was absolutely right in 1910. Every contact does leave a trace. It's just whether or not we find it. And I think we've gradually over the years been getting slightly better at finding it. And we've certainly been getting better at analyzing it. Now, you've actually cracked some cases by looking at the clothing fibers when there is a contact between one person and another. Are there any of these other small little wisps of smoke that tell you that there's a fire? Yes. I mean, if we take um, a very important case, probably one of the most high-profile criminal cases in recent UK um, history was the case of Stephen Lawrence, who was a young black teenager. And the problem with this case was that it was suggested that the police simply didn't get a grip and didn't investigate it properly. And there's a suspicion that it was because he was black and they didn't care as much as they might have if he'd been a white boy. So, of course, that was horrendous and there were public inquiries and they were said to be institutionally racist. And it was a, it was a, so it was a huge case in the UK. When we came to reinvestigate that case... And it would have been about 15 years or so, a little bit less, after the crime had um, happened. We started, as we've learned to do, by going back to the crime scene and trying to understand as closely as we can exactly what happened. Because it's understanding the sequence of events and as precisely as you can what happened originally when the crime was being committed, which will give you your forensic opportunities. And in this particular case, there were some reports by eyewitnesses that Stephen may have been struck with a piece of scaffolding pole. And so the police were obviously very keen to see if they could find any such bits of pole around the, the near the crime scene. And they found something. They found a pole like that in the front garden of a house in the vicinity of where he was uh, stabbed. I should say Stephen was stabbed a couple of times, but that was enough to kill him. We've started off by having a look at this scaffolding pole to see if it was the thing that he might have been struck over the head with. And looking at the pole, you could see that it had been painted. It got some paint markings on it, which builders tend to use to help them erect scaffolding when they put it up. And maybe to identify it as their own, I'm not quite sure. But anyway, it had some paint on it. And so we thought that the first thing we might do is have a look 
on Stephen's clothing and in his hair combings and those sorts of samples for any of the paint that could have come from the scaffolding pole and similarly look at for the scaffolding pole for anything which might suggest that it had been used. And so we did that and we didn't find any paint fragments. There was certainly paint on the pole, but there was no paint transferred to Stephen. But what we did discover when we were doing that was that there were some easy-to-find bright red fibres on the outside of his clothing. And when we researched it a bit more, he was wearing several layers of clothing because it was a cool day, and a cool night rather, and we discovered that several layers down from his outer jacket, he was wearing this red polo shirt. So that's not particularly surprising, right? You've got some of his own fibres on his own clothing, and they've obviously been interchanged between the layers. But what it did tell us was that because there were quite a number of them on the outside, on his outer surface of his jacket, that they could be transferred, along with the more nondescript fibres of his outer clothing, onto whoever might have been in contact with him, so whoever might have attacked him. So having not found anything much with the paint, we then moved on to textile fibres. And we started looking at the um, clothing that had been seized from the suspects for these red fibres, and almost immediately, we started finding there was a red cotton and red polyester. And we started finding both types on one of the long-term suspects that the police had identified. And so it was that that gave us a way in. So it was really the paint where we started, but actually it was the textile fibers that gave us a way into the case. So now there's a lot of evidence, a lot of in the files, a lot of cold cases. Have you thought about taking artificial intelligence and machine learning and running it over these cases in in creative ways to try to find out who did what to whom? Oh, I'm sure that will come. I'm absolutely sure that will come. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we're, I mean, we can't just run stuff over. We can't just scan something and hope to find, you know, links between it. You've actually got to sort of analyse it. Now, a brilliant way to do that would be textile fibres. But recently, over recent years, textile fibres have been becoming less and less popular because it's quite an expensive thing to do because we still hand make it. We hand craft our examinations. There is instrumentation now available that could automate the whole process, but it's not something that the police who commission all the forensic tests have been focusing on, and so it has never been developed. But I'm sure, I mean, that's certainly something that could happen in the future, absolutely. My final question to you is, if you could have one piece of technology to help forensic scientists do their job better, technology that might not exist that you would want to invent, what would it be? I'd want to have some technology to help with the enormous amounts of information that you get off digital devices. I suppose that, you know, that, that sort of did it instantly, instantly download, loaded stuff and compared. And so you didn't need enormous amounts of man hours that we need at the moment. All this CCTV footage that they have to go through it just takes forever. Because I think there's an enormous amount of information that can incriminate people and exonerate people. And we see it both ways in reports of cases. And I think we just need to bring ourselves all very well having these devices. It's all very well using evidence from them, but we just need to sort that out before much more time passes because it's dangerous, both in terms of convicting people, but also probably exonerating people. Angela, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And finally, the rise of the robot in the workplace. One of the small joys of life is the perfectly made cup of coffee. In fact, I personally have organized my life around getting a great coffee anywhere I am, day or night, 
anywhere in the world. And one of the best aspects of it is not just the coffee itself, but also interacting with the people at the cafe, and in particular still, the barista. However, all of this might be set to change. The friendly smile behind the counter with a tattooed forearm, face jewelry, and probably different attitudes and perspectives on life could be replaced by a faceless robot. Joining me down the line is David Hambling, who wrote about it for this week's Economist. Hello, David. Hi there. David, I am spitting venom right now. How dared you replace my beautiful barista and a great cup of coffee with a robot? Well, the developers say that they're not actually trying to replace humans and they're still trying to keep a a friendly face in your coffee shop. It just won't be the person who's physically making the coffee. It's interesting, a number of them have homed on in this, that people like to have the human contact. So while the actual coffee making may be done by this, uh, as you say, faceless robot, it will still be served by a, a smiling human being. The idea is that both sides are playing to their strength. Okay, now before I seize upon this and try to rip you to shreds, Let's find out what's going on. What is going on? Coffee is a huge business these days, and the coffee bars are are spreading everywhere. But one of the interesting features is that however many of them there are, come rush hour in the morning, there is always a queue, and the baristas are always overworked, busily trying to catch up with all the orders for espressos and lattes and cappuccinos. And one way around this would be to give them some automated help. So what exactly is new here? Because I think we already have robot coffee makers and they're known as vending machines or Nespresso. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, um, particularly in America, the the whole idea of machine coffee never took off because it's basically made with powder, which is always seen as a a very inferior substitute to actually grinding it and making the coffee with a a proper coffee machine there fresh uh, in front of your eyes. Uh, So the idea here is that it will do everything that a normal coffee bar does, but do it without having a human barista pulling the levers and moving the cups around. And why is that better? What's wrong with the human barista? There's nothing wrong with the human barista except that they're overworked. And the machines, the idea is they will provide speed and precision and consistency that is is beyond a, a human being. So what kind of coffee shops are under threat? It's not clear whether any of them are under threat, but the places that are being targeted are initially very high-volume spots, like airports and shopping malls and railway stations, where you tend to get a rush of people. And I I think those are going to be the the first ones uh, which are are going to see robot coffee makers move in. I suspect your friendly neighbourhood coffee shop is likely to be uh, a lot more robust in the face of automation. Now, can these robotic baristas also produce podcasts? And I ask because my overworked and long-suffering producer, Simon Jarvis, always makes me a cup of coffee when I look particularly tired because he's such a decent bloke and he's a fantastic coffee maker. Is he going to be replaced as well? I think this is perhaps a, a slight sign that there are all kinds of jobs that no one was ever thinking that machines would be involved in, whereas there's some very creative entrepreneurs out there who are just thinking about ways that they might be able to do a little bit of automation. So I, I wouldn't rule anything out at this point. And what about podcasting hosts? They're certainly invulnerable to these transformations. Well, they are at the moment, but I think we'd better wait and see because technology is developing very fast. And I think podcast hosts and journalists ought to keep looking over their shoulder. Or we have to compete. David, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week's Babbage. If you like our show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you like our journalism, take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. 
I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, with a cup of coffee in my hand, beautifully made by a human, this is The Economist. The television show CSI, where do they sit? Well, the problem is that I don't watch it much. You know, I have seen a bit of it, absolutely, enough to assure myself that it's not really reflective of what really happened. I accuse you of job protection. (laughs) (laughs) Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.